the Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Tuesday, the 1st of March. The team is in the Drakensberg this week for the Biz News Conference, or BNC3 as we like to call it. We're going to be providing you with a wide variety of interviews and perspectives, coupled of course with all the international business news you need to know from our partner, the Financial Times. Let's get to your news headlines. RightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. After months of legal proceedings, International Criminal Police Organization Interpol has issued red notices for Atul and Rajesh Gupta related to fraud and money laundering allegations. The charges are centered around the Free State Department of Agriculture and payment of 24.9 million rand to Gupta-linked entities. A red notice is a formal request to members of Interpol to apprehend and hold a suspect pending an extradition process. According to the NPA, this will assist the state in extraditing the brothers to face trial in South Africa. South Africa's public service unions say their dispute with the government over public sector wages is far from over, and that strike action has not been ruled out. The unions expressed a disappointment with the Constitutional Court ruling which dismissed their application to force the government to pay the third year of a negotiated wage agreement. The Apex Court found that the agreement was unlawful and invalid, thus giving the government authority to renege on the multi-billion rand deal. And now it's on to my colleague Justin for the Market Report. The JSEL share index was up at 76,800. Fresh highs for the local boss. In the price action, PSG well up. More on that in, in a bit. Xara up after a good trading update, and so is Tiger Brands. The losers for the day, AB, Imbev, Barlow's, and Mondi, all with exposure to Russia and Ukraine, are down again for the third trading day running. The Jeltic crypto basket is up 11% on the day as the broader crypto market booms. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 42 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 66 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 20 cents to the euro. Gold was weaker at $1,920 an ounce. Kruger rand will cost you around 31,000 rand. Brent crude is trading at $100.90 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 690,000 rand. In the financial news, shares of investment giant PSG Group, whose interests reign from consulting and agriculture to, to private education, surged by almost a third on Tuesday after it said it intends to delist from the JSE due to the hefty discount to which its shares trade. One of the pleasures of being in Cape Town at the moment is, is meeting with Professor Tim Nooks. Jeepers, Tim. It's, it's been decades since we've had this opportunity. The old Sports Science Institute, I was working for ABSA. You'd just created this with Monet Duplessis. Alec, I can still remember we were walking around the building, which was still being finished off, and I can, we were on the third floor. And I remember you coming to look around and inspect and see what was happening. I remember that with, with, with great happiness. You were just way ahead from a global perspective at that stage on studying the science of sport. Yeah, indeed. It was great. It was a wonderful time with Mornay. We had, we had a fantastic time. We had fantastic 20 great years. I really enjoyed every minute of it. Tim, just by way of background, 
what brought you into the world that you're in now? I mean, you're in your eighth decade, um, originally born in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe or then right. Rhodesia. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to admit this, but uh, my father was in the tobacco exporting industry in Britain, in Liverpool, and the family had always wanted to come to Africa or to us to America because my dad wanted to be where the tobacco was being produced because he thought that was where the growth was going to be. And my uncle was actually in Cape Town on the day the Second World War broke out. And he simply got back on the boat and went back to, to England and tragically died in the war. But they, the family was about to go to Zimbabwe and that was 1939. So anyway, after the war, my dad and my mother and my sister, who was then only a few months old, came to Cape Town and they drove all the way to Harare and they set up and my dad then developed the business. And after a period, he, he sold the company to an American company. He became the chairman of the company, the, this, the African component of the business. And uh, we could live in Cape Town and he would, trans he would go up to, to Harare once every three months or so. So you might have been born there, but you're really a Cape Town. Yeah, we've been here for uh, since I was age of five. So I've been here 67, 60 odd years. And school here? Yeah, then I went to a lovely private school for, for my, the primary for preparatory school, Monterey Preparatory School, which, which doesn't exist anymore. It was just magic. I, when I think back, we were very fortunate. The children were really good kids. There was no bullying. Everyone was friendly. And it was a lovely environment. So I had five or six amazing years as in preparatory school. Medicine. Yeah, so then I went to, to Bishops and finished at Bishops. And when I left Bishops, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I wasn't particularly good at anything. And I was academically okay, but I wasn't an absolute star or anything. But I loved sport. That was the one thing that I loved. Now, very fortunately, or because I was born in Zimbabwe of British parents, I had a British passport. And I said, no, that's not good enough. If I'm going to live in South Africa, I must get a South African passport. So I then became a naturalized South African. And I went into the military for nine months and had a fantastic time. Was that oh, national service? Yeah, that was my national mm -hmm. service as it was then. And we had absolute ball. I spent six months in Pretoria at the military college and doing intelligence, which was... <laughs> which was All 17 years old. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And then I was very fortunate to get a scholarship to go to America on the exchange program, American Field Service. And I went to Los Angeles and I went to a highly integrated school. So here I come from this highly privileged school, Bishops, which is obviously all white. And I go to the school, which is highly integrated, one of the most integrated schools in America. And I assumed all schools are integrated. But the guys told me, no, 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 this was a special school. And I had a fantastic year, as uh, just seeing the opportunities. Opening your mind. Absolutely. Coming from this restricted apartheid environment and going to that school. And, and I was welcomed by the African-Americans because they said, you're our brother. <laughs> and so I had a great time. But the key moment was we're driving from back to Los Angeles on Sunday, the 3rd of December. And the radio says... A surgeon in South Africa has just formed, performed the world's first human heart transplant. Now you can imagine, here I am, quite isolated in this country, 
and they say this has, this has happened in Cape Town. And then of course Chris Barnard was on the television and he was being interviewed and he was astonishingly good. He was a brilliant speaker. You know, one tends to think Americans are brilliant speakers, but he was absolutely astonishing. Three months later, I literally woke up one morning and I said, I'm going to study medicine. I went to medical school and here in in, in, at the University of Cape Town. And the last thing that happened to me before I left America was on the day we graduated at the grade 12. My best friend, I asked him, what sport are you going to do when you leave the high school? And he says, I'm going to Salt Lake City University. University of Utah and I'm going to row, I'm going to crew. And I thought, you know, that's a really good idea. I said, I never thought about it. Initially, I'd never thought about it. I mean, why would I have thought of rowing? So I came to UCT and the first thing I did was sign up for rowing. And so we started rowing and the next thing that happened was in the second year I was rowing, this coach arrived out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere, because one of the problems in rowing is there aren't many coaches and there weren't in those days because they're all amateurs and they don't get paid. And this guy was just, we, we've, he was just brilliant. And he turned us into really good oarsmen. And whilst that process, we learned how to get fit and he taught us how to train properly and I started running. And then one, one day, there was, the water was so bad, we couldn't row. And everyone else went, but I decided I'm gonna run around the lake. So I ran around it and after 40 minutes, I just got this moment when I suddenly, I got this high, the runner's high. And I knew that's what I have to do. <laughs> okay, science-wise, where does the runner's high come from? Is it endorphins? Is it a chemical reaction? Yeah, brain? I'm sure it is. You know, we kind of say it is without, but how can you study? That's the problem with psychology and psychiatry is you can't study what's happening in the brain. So we just assume it's correct. So yes, I'm sure that there is a, a change in the brain chemicals. But what I, I'm just going to add further, I fell in love with running because we used to run for four hours or five hours and then I'd get that high. And that's why I loved running the comrades, because I would get so high in training and in the race itself that I, I couldn't avoid it. How many comrades? I ran seven comrades, but I would have run more if I hadn't been stupid enough to eat this high carbohydrate diet, because that made me progressively sicker without realizing it, and it took away my edge of my running edge. So I was only really good at running when I trained for four or five hours and regularly running lots of distance because then I was burning up all the carbohydrates and they weren't affecting me. But as soon as I dropped my mileage of this accumulation of carbohydrate because I'm carbohydrate intolerant, affected my, my physical state. And so that, that was, had I known, if I'd been eating the diet I'm now eating, I would have done many more comrades. And just as an aside, of course I converted Bruce in the 1970s, That's Bruce Fordyce, Bruce Fordyce to the high carbohydrate diet. And then I converted him to the high-fat diet more recently. And he said, Tim, you know, if I'd been following this high-fat diet, I would have run Comrade 10 minutes faster. <laughs> and he won nine. And he won nine. And he set the record that was only broken 20 years later. And another person I influenced was a chap called Dave Scott, who was one of the great Ironman triathlons, triathletes. The Law of Running yeah. is, is a, a global book. Runners pick it up. It is uh, iconic. That, however, was also from maybe the previous Timna. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So what happened with the law of running? I was writing regular columns. And again, this comes back to, fortunately, when I started running, Dave Levick, who trained at Vitz and who won the Comrades in 1973, that was the first year I ran it and he, he won it. 
he said, Tim, you're quite a good writer. Why don't you write something about running and medicine and I'll publish it because he was publishing a little magazine called the Roadrunners magazine or something. And I wrote an article for him and he said, you know, I really think it's good. I'm going to send it to Runners World in America, which he did. And they published it. So that was the beginning of my writing. And by 1981, I'd written a lot of stuff. And so I said, well, all I have to do is put it all together and it's a book. So then I put it all together and it wasn't a book. And then I started writing the first edition of Law of Running, which, which took another three years. And it's been through now three revisions. It's, the fourth edition is out and it's, it's ranked the ninth greatest book on running ever. So it's, it's, done, it's achieved a lot. But as you said, the problem was it promoted the high carbohydrate diet. And although everything I said is factually correct, it's inappropriate because what I've written there is appropriate for people who are continually eating a high carbohydrate diet. If you're eating a high fat diet, the evidence is completely wrong. It's all wrong. So I'm rewriting the book. And, and, and what's really interesting is if you read that book, it's, the whole story is about the physiology of running and it's how eating a high carbohydrate diet determines your performance. And that, now I know that's all wrong. We're now moving to the mental side, the mental preparation and so on. And one of the two iconic things that I did, the seminal contributions I made to science, one of them is the, the, what's called the central governor model of exercise. And that means that the brain regulates your performance. And that's now accepted, although for 100 years no one would listen to that. And now people are saying, yes, Noakes was right. And what are the new book will be all about how the brain regulates performance and how you get your brain right. And so this whole thing of mental health and keeping your mental health going and preparing yourself and how you prepare yourself for, for competition. The whole book's about, because it's not just competition, it's life. Mm -hmm. And so that will be the, the focus. Not, it's not physiology that determines your, your health and your performance. It's, it's your mental state. Then you brought out a book that must have been very difficult to, to write because you, you almost cha you changed your mind. Now, yeah. for a scientist, that has got to be the most valuable quality, but it appears nowadays if you're a scientist, you don't change your mind. Yeah, and the reason you can't change your mind is because of your conflicts of interest. But fortunately, Mike, I didn't understand that I had conflicts of interest and that I would be throwing them away. And fortunately, it happened late in my career, so I only had three more years to go before I retired. So the consequences me, for me were not quite as great. Had it happened 10 or 15 years earlier, my career would have come to an end. So what happened was... But, but let's let just explore that a little yeah. bit. Is this perhaps why a lot of people are reluctant to, to go out there, to step outside of the boundaries? Yeah, absolutely. If you've been following a particular direction in science and you will have picked up funding for that and you will be known as an expert in this particular area, if that area suddenly becomes irrelevant, well, you, you, what do you do? You've still got a career ahead of you and you'll just keep going down that route. And I see that all the time, that people, they, they just, they're boxed into this position and they can't change because that's the end of their career. They've got a mortgage, they've got kids at school. Correct. It is dishonest. Yeah, it is dishonest. Um, but, you know, it's easy for, for us to be judgmental because we don't have that problem. And for, as I said, for me, I was fine because it was the end of my career. So it never even occurred to you that not you at should all. be doing this? So not at all. what exactly did you do? So what happened was, I wrote the book Waterlogged, I think, which you know about, 
which exposed the sports drink industry, how they'd manipulated the scientists and the science to promote their product. And as a consequence, people had died. And I'd exposed that. And I wrote this. That took 30 years. And it was 30 years of research. And on a particular evening in December 2010, I sent off the manuscript to the publishers in America. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and my brain said, you've got to get back to running. You haven't been running enough. So you've got to get up at six o'clock and run. So I got up at six o'clock and I had the worst run I've ever had in my life. And I went up a small little hill near my house and I thought I was at the top of Mount Everest when I was at the top of this hill. So I figured something's got to change. And now this is where chance happens. I literally came home, opened my email and there was an advert and it said, lose six pounds in six weeks without hunger. And it was the Atkins diet and the book was called The New Atkins for the New You. And I was so angry because the three scientists, I knew them. And I said, they've sold out to Atkins. Atkins was the guy who tried to kill us by telling us to eat saturated fat. So I literally went down to the, to the local bookseller and bought the book. It was the last copy they had. And I brought it home and I sat down with a cup of tea and started reading. Two and a half hours later, I said, oh my gosh, I got it wrong for 33 years. And I told my wife, that's it, no more carbs. How did you know? Because I, I, I felt so bad. It said there are 150 scientific papers showing the benefit of the low carbohydrate diet. And then I looked at the back, there they were all referenced, and they were good journals. And I said, but, but how do I not know about these? I'm a nutritionist and a sports scientist and a doctor. I should know about these studies. And they're suppressed. They're completely suppressed. And they're just not in the mainstream. Why are they suppressed? I would hate to say this because I think that humans have to be kept unhealthy, in other words, for people to make money. The pharmaceutical industry and the food industry have to keep us unhealthy if they're going to make their profits. And that's the problem. But there's a vested interest. There's a vested interest. So you read it and it was Eureka. It was, absolutely. And then, of course, I've become very friendly with those three scientists who wrote the book. Jeff Olek, who's really... I was asked to judge him and I said, this guy should win a Nobel Prize because he's done the best studies of low-carbohydrate diets. And he started in 2000, you know, when it was definitely not mainstream. And it's funny, what happened was he got funded by Atkins for various reasons. And so Atkins, Robert Atkins, who developed the Atkins diet, put together a foundation and Jeff Volek was one of the first to receive funding. Otherwise, he couldn't get funding. He said, every year I put in my application to the National Institute of Health and as soon as it says low-carbohydrate, they just throw it out. And so he's never been funded by the organizations. The National Institute of Health has never funded him. So that, that's the problem because the, it works. And that's the problem. And if you go on this diet and you reverse your diabetes and you don't need insulin, then the pharmaceutical industry is going to lose a lot of money. And we now know that you can reverse type 2 diabetes completely. And I'm an example. The diet caused me to get type 2 diabetes. I went on the low-carb diet and my diabetes is in remission. It's not cured. I can't eat carbohydrates. I have to stay away from carbs. But as long as I do that, I'm perfectly healthy. And then you tell the world about this. Yeah, I, I probably shouldn't mention that I wrote an article for one of my funders. <laughs> it was published in their, their magazine and they never asked me to write an article after that. And they pulled the funding there shortly thereafter. So we lost the funding and uh, that was the beginning. Then the Medical Research Council. Funding for what? Oh, for the Sports Science Institute and for my research, yeah. So suddenly you, from being funded and, yeah. and part of the respectable group, yeah. you... Absolutely. You went the other way. And, and the, the 
So I was head of the Medical Research Council unit for 25 years, which is something of a record, because every year you, you evaluate it every five years. And we were always the top one or two or three performers in the country. And then all of a sudden, gone. All funding disappeared. At that time, you were persona very grata. And then it wasn't long after that you were persona non grata. Yeah, as soon as I started promoting this, this diet, it became a problem. The irony was that I'd been the, the poster boy for the high carbohydrate diet that they promote. And once I converted, then, then I was obviously no longer acceptable. How did you keep yourself sane during this time? Because here you are, you've, you've been a spokesperson, as you say, for one line of thinking in the medical industry, and you see it differently, and suddenly you ostracized as part. Yeah, I think the, the worst for me was I didn't get any support from the people who I had trained. That, that was the worst bit. And the people that I'd helped become career scientists rejected me because the university declared me persona non grata. And I mean, that I was publicly humiliated by the University of Cape Town. And that was, and I was mobbed. That's called academic mobbing. And what happened was the Dean of Medicine at that stage told every professor at the medical faculty that Noakes is bad news, you won't deal with him. Why? Because I'd broken the code. Isn't science well, about getting all sides of the story? Even if you disagree with somebody, you, you, you have to have your own beliefs challenged. Yeah. And that came to challenging beliefs, you book. Yeah, the problem is we're talking about research for the, for the benefit of the people. That doesn't exist anymore. The research that happens now is for the benefit of industry. Because and, it's funded. Yeah, and that's the problem. So we have this, this conflict at universities. Mm. There are some professors who are trying to do research that will help the people. But in the medical school, most of the research is to help industry. And it's propaganda for promoting their products. Now, I, I would ordinarily sit here and say, no, come on, Tim, you got, it, got that wrong. But I recently read a book called Empire of Pain, yeah, uh, which is all about the, the epidemic of opioids in the United States, where half a million people have died because yeah. of exactly this process. Yeah. It's a very thick book and a, yeah. a bestseller. Yeah. Are you saying that it's, it's more prevalent than just in opioids? Every single medical school around the world that wants to be world-class has to make this pact with the devil. And the devil is the pharmaceutical industry. Take my experience. I've reversed my type 2 diabetes, and I promote that idea. And it was one of the reasons why I got thrown out, because the book that you're referring to, The Real Meal Revolution, says that type 2 diabetes is reversible. Now, when I said that, I was exposed as making ludicrous claims, but I had all the evidence. That, that this was possible. But the university expelled me and said I was making unfounded claims, and plus a few other things they said. Given what's happened subsequent to that, given, given the uh, esteem with, with which you hold globally, has there been a reversal in that position? Oh yes, now the, the, the Diabetes Association globally now say that low carbohydrate diets can reverse type 2 diabetes, which is exactly what I said in, in 2012 in the book. And now it's accepted as fact. Have you been invited back? <laughs> no, not at all. And uh, the university, which was directly behind my trial and trying to get me thrown out of the medical profession and so on, uh, has never apologised that I was right. That trial, yeah. that I remember at the time Marika Sporos was working with us at Disney's and she was, she was in the front row watching it. Uh, it. It must have been pretty stressful. Yeah, it was extremely stressful. What happened was 
I was targeted because I had focused on Gatorade, the sports drink, and exposed them and their malicious actions. And there's an organization called the International Life Sciences Institute, which is a front for the pharmaceutical industry and for the food industry. And I'm fairly sure that they targeted me and they wanted to do something to expose me. I was quite I'm active on Twitter and I tweeted in response to a lady's question. I tweeted an answer which was not to an individual, but which was to a we answering a we question. And I said, basically, it's best to raise your children on a real food diet, high fat, low carbohydrate diet. And I was reported within nine hours by the head of the South African Dietetics Association. She was the president at the time. She reported me. I don't think she read the tweet very carefully, and so she made a couple of errors. And that then went to the Health Professions Council, that complaint, and I was asked to answer it, which I did. And I thought it was a joke because she didn't come up with any evidence of what I said was wrong. So I didn't treat it very seriously. I didn't have a lawyer discuss it, and I just wrote my own response. That was received by the Health Professionals Council, who had a committee. Now, the committee's job is then to decide, are we going to charge Noakes or not? There were two people on that committee who I personally know. The one was the professor of surgery at the University of Cape Town, who I'd known personally. And in fact, he'd given me the award for the best student in surgery when I was a student. And there was another lady on the committee who had grown up with my sister. They'd been at school. Despite that, the committee met and they decided they didn't have enough information. So they had to fish for more information. And they found a letter from the, from the University of Cape Town, the letter distancing itself from me, that letter which was circulated to the Minister of Health in, South Af in, in the national government and in the provincial government. It was sent to every dean of medicine throughout South Africa. What's the deans of medicine got to do with this? And so there was that letter and then there was an article written by Stellenbosch University Dietetics Department which, which had been paid for by one of the people we've already discussed today. And, that's, and that study we subsequently showed looked like it was fraudulent. They had to change a few things but we went through it in the trial and showed that it had 14 material errors. And if you converted those 14 material errors, the outcome was that this diet that I proposed looked better than the standard diet. So on the basis of this information, the letter and this potentially fraudulent article, this committee decided to charge me. They did not do what they should by, by law. They had to approach me and say, you must answer this question, you must answer that. I was never given that. And the head of it was the head of ethics at a very famous South African university. It's almost like they were coming for you. Absolutely. Well, we know the Dean of Medicine at the University of Cape Town had told all the professors that Noakes is no good, don't talk to him. Was there any consequence after you won the trial? Nothing. Nothing changed. Absolutely nothing changed. No one apologised. The media covered it because they were hoping I was going to lose. And the moment I won, they just disappeared. They just absolutely disappeared. And how does that make you feel? Well, I think it's predictable. You know, I've learned to judge that the, this, the system is wrong. It's, the system is rotten and the truth is not coming out there. And so I'm, my goal is to just keep pushing for the truth. Yeah, so what happened was when we wrote The Real Meal Revolution, it, it sold a lot of copies and, and I never keep that money for myself because that's kind of a conflict. So I donated that money to the Noakes Foundation. We started the foundation 
And John O. Proudfoot, who was one of the authors, and in fact it was mainly his idea, he said, you need to employ someone to run the foundation. So we did. And we started, and the goal originally was to fund research in the laboratory to promote the low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, which we did. And we raised quite a lot of money overseas from a couple of altruists, and we funded that research. But then we realized that in, in the period that the research took, we did some fabulous research, but realized the fields moved on. The evidence that this diet works is now absolutely convincing. We are adding additional money to it. It's not going to make any difference. So what the idea came to, to some of the people in the foundation that we needed to start educating doctors because they're the ones who can really change people. Every doctor who changes to this diet will, cha will change 10,000 people you know, in their actions. So we set up the Nutrition Network, which has become a global network, training doctors, dietitians, coaches in this, this diet and promoting the low-carbohydrate diet because that is the solution to the problem of diabetes and obesity. Getting back to the Notes Foundation, apart from promoting, or maybe differently, uh, how do you promote the low-carb, high-fat So, So one of the valid criticisms was that the, the Banting book, or The Real Meal Revolution, it's quite expensive. If you follow the diet there, it's quite expensive. And the people challenged us, but that won't work in South Africa. So our foundation developed the Eat Better South Africa campaign, which promotes a diet that is cheap and still effective. And that's our goal. Of, that is, we're promoting that a lot. And it's really simple and it's not difficult to do. And, but governments won't accept it, which makes me so frustrated. But we have made some breakthroughs and we are working with the Western Cape Dove government now on a particular site where we will be introducing this diet for people with type 2 diabetes in the community. Because all of medicine at the moment is you've got to go to Kruzky Hospital to get your diabetes treatment, but that's not going to help because it's a behavior disorder. So you've got to change the behavior. You've got to change the eating patterns. And you do that by educating people in their communities, not having them come to hospital and give them medications to treat their diabetes. Type 2 diabetes, what is it exactly? So type 2 diabetes is a condition which occurs usually in older people after 30 or 40 or 50. It's a, it's a disease that develops over 20 or 30 years in people who, like myself, are what we call insulin resistant. We are resistant to carbohydrate. When we take carbohydrate, it produces a response, which is an abnormal response. We have to over-secrete this hormone called insulin to try and get the carbohydrate distributed around the body. The more insulin you secrete, the fatter you get and you start damaging your other organs. You start to keep fat in the liver and, and the pancreas and skeletal muscle and in your adipose tissue in the gut. And that then causes all the complications. And we think that most of the chronic diseases can be explained by insulin resistance and people eating high carbohydrate diets and developing this visceral obesity which then causes all these other problems and that includes cancer and dementia so all of medicine can be explained all of chronic disease can be explained by people who are insulin resistant eating high carbohydrate diets full of cereals and grains which is what we've been telling people to eat for the last 50 years and we have an obesity and diabetes epidemic and we have a cancer epidemic and they're all very likely linked directly back to the diet that we're eating. Are there any other theories on why we have this obesity 
Oh, oh, physical inactivity and we're just lazy and we eat too much. That, but it's not true. You eat because you're hungry. That's the key. And, and the one a beauty of this diet is it takes away hunger. So if you want to be healthy, you have to not be hungry all the time. You must be hungry once a day. And then you have one meal, big meal, and that's it. And you don't snack every three hours or eat every three hours. That's the key. We, when the book was published, a lot of people wrote to me and said, you know, I've reversed my diabetes on this. And we contacted them. We contacted 28 people who claimed that their diabetes had been reversed. And of them, 75% had indeed reversed their diabetes. And what we found that the ones who succeeded were the ones that said, I no longer have any food addictions. I have no more cravings. I'm not hungry. And I, when I walk in the street, I get embraced by women and say, you took away all my cravings. And that's the key. I noticed when we had coffee earlier, yeah. you don't have sugar. Absolutely. I stopped sugar 10, 12 or 12 years ago now. And that, that's difficult because I was a sugar addict. And we... What is a sugar addict? It's someone who... <laughs> It's like an alcoholic, but it's with sugar, and you can't stop. And you, with with sugar, you just take more and more and more, and then it completely hijacks your brain. And you're always looking for the sweet taste, and that's the problem. The obesity epidemic is driven by sugar addiction, and we know if we want to reverse obesity and diabetes, we have to control the sugar addiction. That's one thing you cannot control your weight if you're addicted to sugar because all the foods, processed foods, contain sugar. So you've got to get rid of the sugar addiction, you get rid of the ultra-processed foods and then you start living properly. So you were a sugar addict? Absolutely. But you were burning it up by running? For the f yes, for a period, for about 10 years I was. Okay. But then for the next, 10, next 30 years I wasn't. And that's when I put on weight and that's when I started becoming more and more diabetic. I went through the phase of pre-diabetes, which I didn't recognize. And then I developed frank diabetes. Yeah. And, and how do people who haven't been diagnosed with this know? Or what are the telltale yeah. signs? But I think you, you put on weight and you start to feel miserable. You know, that's where once your blood glucose starts getting up high, then you become, you become miserable and, and irritable. And that, those are the sorts of things you observe. And then your physical fitness deteriorates. Even though you might be trying to get Yeah, it. absolutely. I mean, you know, I, the irony was that here I was running. I used to run with my mates. And we would have a Coke in the middle of the run. And we'd, have, we'd also eat sweets. And that was not smart at all. But you thought at the time it was... Oh, smart. no, you know, you need your cars. You're running. You've got to have the cars. Meanwhile, the cars are killing us. So when you changed, how did you confirm to yourself that you were on the right track? Well, it was simple because I just suddenly felt so much better. In the end, I lost 20 kilos. But that took a bit longer, but I lost 15 kilos in the first few months. But my running, rever I reverted back to what I'd been running at when I was 40. So I was 60, and I was running times that I'd last run when I was 40. So that, to me, told me, okay, what I'm doing is obviously right. But remember, let's, let's make this point. I watched my dad die of type 2 diabetes, and it is the worst disease. He was this astonishingly productive, wonderful man. And he, over 10 years, he just withered away. He lost both his legs. He had strokes when he died. We couldn't speak. And that's awful. So we couldn't say goodbye to each other. And I watched this man who, who I had such high regard for just wither away. And there was nothing I could do for him because I was ignorant. And he was dying. He had been killed by the advice he was getting. Now, 
I've had my diagnosis of diabetes for at least 10 years and it could be 15 years. I could have been diabetic for 15 years by now. I should be dead. I shouldn't be sitting here. My dad took 10 years to die. I should be dead. And if I wasn't dead, I should be 140 kilos from injecting insulin and with all sorts of peripheral vascular disease, probably a stroke, probably a heart attack. And it didn't happen to me because I managed to make this change. So, Are people still being diagnosed and treated that way? Oh yeah, that's a standard treatment. And it's again, why? Because of the insulin. You have to get your insulin. Because the pharmaceutical industry is dependent on it. There are about five companies which are absolutely dependent on you using insulin. But surely the doctors, the doctors go into medicine to do no harm. They certainly aren't going there to kill people. Why is the, is the treatment not changing? Okay, if the professor of endocrinology at WITS or UCT got up tomorrow and said no more insulin, they finished. That's the end of their career. What happened to me will happen to them. And the reason is the pharmaceutical industry will fund funds research. And if you are a professor of endocrinology and want to keep your department going, you need the extra funds. Where are the extra funds going to come from? The pharmaceutical industry. Which division? The ones that produce insulin. So you could never, ever say that you, you shouldn't be using insulin, you should rather be following this low-carbohydrate diet. It's absolutely impossible for them to say it. And when I, when I was first attacked, the earliest attacks came from the, from the insulin-producing, promoting doctors in South Africa. They were the first to attack me. And then it was the statin people, the cardiologists promoting statins. What, what statins? Statins are the drugs that lower your blood cholesterol concentration and supposedly meant to prevent heart disease, which they don't. And so I was targeted. Why should I be targeted by pharmaceutical doctors who are so linked to the pharmaceutical industry? And these were professors of leading faculties in South Africa. What about a guy like Lewis Pugh, yeah. who, who speaks very highly of you? And is, he's a serious big deal internationally. Yeah. And he swears by what you taught him. But, but surely, if you're going to swim in ice-cold waters, you, you can't be on a low-carb high fat <laughs> oh no absolutely the best swimmers the best ultra distance swimmers are all in high fat diets but but you know to come back to lewis uh, what was really funny was that he asked me if he could swim around the cape peninsula and i didn't know he thought he was asking me as his coach and i thought he was asking me as a physiologist and i said there's no problem with physiology as long as you you only swim for three or four hours a day, you can do it, you see. But he took me as a coach, believing in him that he personally could do it, you see. And so he said, when he landed, he started in Cape Town and finished up at Musenberg Beach. He phoned me from the beach and he said, you made it possible. I said, what did I do? I just sat at home. He said, no, you believed in me. And that was where we started, that it was the belief. And I learned over the, over the years that the belief system is so critical in, and I was able to help him by telling him it was possible and we then did the experiments that allowed him to swim in the Arctic and in the, in the, Atlantic, in the South Atlantic. So your advice to someone who's aging? Yeah, well it's quite simple. You've got to understand that your tissues are designed to work best when you eat what humans evolved to eat. And we evolved over millions of years eating animals. And so you've got to, and that's what our tissues are made of. Wouldn't you want to eat an animal? Because that's the tissues in the animal are more, more like your own tissues. 
But cereals and grains only came along 12,000 years ago and they're completely different and they can't sustain your cellular structure as well as can animal produce. So first you start, you get rid of the cereals and grains and the sugar and the ultra processed foods. That has to go. And then you start doing your exercise as well. But you can't, you can't outrun a bad diet. You've got to get the nutrition first and then you start the exercise. And although I promoted running all my life, I've learned that as you get over 60, you need to do weight training. If you look at a gorilla, they have this huge gut and that is actually made up of a large intestine which is full of bacteria which break down vegetables and we don't have that we don't need that anymore the the bacteria in the gut of the gorilla convert carbohydrates into saturated fats so the gorilla has a high saturated fat diet although it doesn't look like it because it's eating leaves and roots and shoots and so on what humans the three million years ago realized that why don't we just eat the saturated fat in the animals rather than having to develop it and so we got the shortcut and now we've got a small waist and that brought our knees closer the pelvis got closer the knees got closer and we could start running so those are all those changes now you you can't reverse that in it'll take millions of years if you wanted to be a grain eater it's going to take millions of years for us to get this large colon and this exposed abdomen it's it's not going to happen in in 100 years or a thousand years so the the popular uh, approach towards this is not based on that kind of rational thinking but more on the influence of commercial interests absolutely yeah so that i mean the evidence is absolutely clear humans are designed to eat meat and that every bit of our physiology is designed for that Tim, for the time that you have left on Earth, and hopefully it's yeah. many decades yet, <laughs> what are you wanting to achieve? Yeah, you know, I really go from day to day, but uh, my goal would be to, to expose the medical profession, which unfortunately has been so dominated by the pharmaceutical industry. And people have to understand that we're not getting the right advice. And if you want to be healthy, you're not going to get it through medicine. The only way you're going to get health, healthy is looking after yourself. And that means avoiding medicine as far as possible. And the basis begins in nutrition. There's absolutely no doubt about that. So the idea that medicine deals with health is completely wrong. Medicine deals with disease. And that's fine. You know, I, I criticize medicine because the surgery, the obstetrics and gynae, it's unbelievable. You know, that and the the trauma surgery, these guys are geniuses and they would fix you up and it's brilliant. And the, this is not any reflection on those people who spend their lives learning those skills and save our lives. I've had major surgery and the skill was unbelievable. I can't believe it. And I will forever thank the doctor who did the operation. And Chris Barnard. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when I criticize the profession, we understand it's purely the management of chronic disease. We are completely clueless. And all we are doing, we are forcing people to become progressively less healthy. And if we would just give them the right information, they could become healthy by themselves. Who do you surround yourself with at the NOACS Foundation? The people who are completely committed to everything I've said and who are also visionaries and want to make a difference. That's all. We're just interested in making a difference. And we're a tiny, tiny, tiny organization. 
But the group that we're involved with, the low-carb community globally, are people who are just as vigorous and interested as myself and who are as determined to change it. Because we've seen. The key is that if you promote a low-carbohydrate diet, once upon a time you were unhealthy. Every single one of us was unhealthy. And we followed the guidelines and we taught everyone that they must eat the, the low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet. We promoted that. I promoted it for 33 years. And I harmed a lot of people. And we, only when you realize it yourself and you change, then you become very motivated to continue to change and to change the world. Is there any way of quantifying the progress that you've made since you had that eureka moment? Well, unfortunately, the data don't show it because the data show that humans are getting fatter all the time. So I think we've, we have made huge impact. And I know that there are millions of people in South Africa who follow the Banting Diet as a result of that book. And I take great pride in that, but it's, it's still not enough because we're still not getting the information out to the young people in the schools. They're being taught all the wrong stuff. Our profession is teaching the wrong, giving the wrong information to patients. So there's a lot of work to be done, but we are fighting the pharmaceutical industry, which has, is enormous and has huge resources. So you keep batting on? We just carry on. Yeah, we're going to, we will. <laughs> but the point is that, uh, you know, it's one changing one person one meal at a time. So I don't need any affirmation. <laughs> I've got all the affirmation I need. Andrew Goodhead, welcome to Champagne Sports Resort. Give us the facts, give us the figures. Uh, how many days, how many kilometers, and what was this all for? The back tire. Back tire. Yeah. It's been an arduous journey. I see you got a beer here. When's the last time you, you had the, the nice cool quenching beer down your throat? Most challenging part of a nine-day journey were there parts when you went, what the hell am I doing? And the last day? And then the second last day. And stuff did happen. Well, what, what are some of the the things that broke on the bike or on the rig. How is the weather? Because you're dragging a what looks like quite a heavy solar panel behind you in bad weather have you got a bit of remorse there you're dragging something quite useless behind you
So when the sun is shining, everything is well, and the e-bike is, I don't know what the term is, fully charged, what sort of speeds are you getting out of the e-bike? So b biggest lesson learned out of this, out of the nine days? If you were to do a journey like this again, what would you do differently? You're looking extraordinarily fresh for somebody who's done 1,600 Ks. You're looking very tanned, but how's the <laughs> body, how's the body feeling? It's just uh, the lower parts of my legs. <laughs> is, uh, is the derriere and the legs and the quads, how they hold, they hold, hold up? Well, it's great to have you here. Phenomenal accomplishment and welcome to the Business Conference. Thank you. I'm excited. Today is Tuesday, March 1st, and this is your FT News Briefing. The war in Ukraine is causing energy prices to skyrocket, and the U.S. and its allies are meeting today to discuss potentially releasing oil reserves to offset prices. And Western sanctions are wreaking havoc on Russia's financial system. This is basically one of the ways that the West has to financially attack Russia, and it's really brutal. Plus, we'll take a look at how Gulf states have positioned themselves in this conflict. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The International Energy Agency will hold an emergency meeting today to discuss releasing oil from their strategic reserves. The goal would be to stabilize the market. Oil prices jumped above $100 a barrel after Russia invaded Ukraine. Here's our EU correspondent, Andy Bounds. If they do release the stocks, it would be the first time since the Libyan civil war of 2011. Uh, Libya, obviously another big oil producer. And uh, it would only be about the fourth time in history that they've done this. The Gulf War 1991 and Hurricane Rita and Katrina in 2005. Um, so it's pretty serious. So how much would this actually affect energy prices, Andy? I think it will send a signal to the market that countries are willing to intervene. I don't think it'll have a massive impact because the instability is such that the investors are very worried and market traders are very worried. But, you know, combined with any move that OPEC might make, it's a signal to the market that, you know, countries are prepared to intervene uh, and try to ameliorate these price rises. And how much could a release of oil stocks 
offset Russian supplies? It's probably only a drop in the ocean to some extent. Russia accounts for 10% of global production. You know, we're probably talking about something like, you know, 60, 75 million barrels against a daily demand of 100 million barrels a day around the world. So, I mean, Russia is still supplying oil, pumping oil, despite the sanctions. So in some ways, it's more, the volatility in the price is more future concern and and, and worries about, uh, you know, the effect on the economy rather than the actual supply of oil, which which is still pretty high. Andy Bounds is the FT's EU correspondent. We'll also keep an eye on tomorrow's meeting of OPEC plus oil producers, which includes Russia. Investors in Russian assets are struggling to sell their investments, and a lot have plummeted in value as Western sanctions have been imposed on Russia's financial system. The ruble tumbled nearly 30% in value at one point on Monday. Government bonds fell, so Russia's central bank stepped in and doubled its key interest rate to 20%. To talk more about what's going on, I'm joined by our markets editor, Kitty Morton. We usually talk to her on Fridays, but there's so much going on that we decided to bring her in today. Hey, Katie. Hey, how are you doing? So, Kitty, I mean, how big of a deal is all of this? I mean, the the, the yeah. interest rate thing in itself is huge, but like all of this, how do you what do you make of this turmoil? This is a surgical strike on the Russian financial system that has been executed over the weekend, and. The sanctions, I think we have to assume, are going to be there for a long time. And so if you are an investor, would you want to get into Russian assets now? We've spoken to a lot of um, investors, fund managers who have got a lot of Russian paper on their books and they want out and they can't get out. And because of the way that these sanctions have been formulated, unless they can find another Western buyer to take these Russian government bonds, for example, off their hands, there's no reason to buy Russian assets that anyone sane can think of at the moment. There's only reasons to sell. And so the market has to adjust. Prices have to adjust. So Katie, how bad is this for Russia? This is seriously bad news for Russia because, you know, generally speaking, you can look at a decline in the currency and say, oh, well, maybe this would be good for exports. Not really now because Russia exports a lot of energy and not that much else that's super useful to the rest of the world. So this is not a kind of currency devaluation that's going to help to fire up the economy. It's the sort of currency devaluation that's going to destabilize the banks, that's going to trash the value of a lot of people's savings. And the reason why the central bank came in and more than doubled interest rates is because they are trying to head off financial stability risks. This is a really serious challenge to the entire Russian financial sector. And look, there's going to be collateral damage here. But this is basically one of the ways that the West has to financially attack Russia. Katie, does that mean that investors in Russian assets just have to take the hit? Um, or do, do they wait for someone to pick it up and just kind of sit on their hands? There probably will be a bunch of fund managers that are that are left wearing losses. So for example, say you hold these Russian government bonds, even if the government bonds pay out their regular interest payments, their coupons, can you transfer that money back to a Western bank account? And how? Because that whole system has has fallen apart. So this puts massive pressure on, on the Russian regime. Do we have a sense of whether or not this is hurting Russian people more than wealthier Russians? Does it matter? 
it will matter. There's a lot of ordinary people who are finding that their credit cards won't work or um, who are rushing to try and get hold of money out of cash machines. If we find that there's a large part of the population that simply can't get hold of their own money uh, because their banks are getting into difficulty, this becomes a new kind of domestic front, if you like, for, for Putin and for his, for his regime. It's a little bit unclear at the moment how long-lasting this kind of dash for cash among the ordinary population is, is going to be and what kind of reasons will be thrown out there officially for this happening. But it's clear that money can be a weapon in, in this whole battle over Ukraine and, and, and it's being used really forcefully. Katie Martin is the FT's markets editor. Thanks, Katie. Pleasure. As the war in Ukraine widens global fault lines, Gulf states are trying to remain neutral. The United Arab Emirates defied the U.S., its longtime partner, and abstained from a U.N. vote condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They were joined by China and India on that one. On the face of it, it is a surprise because the Gulf historically has depended on the United States for its security and its protection. That's our Gulf business correspondent, Simeon Kerr. But things have changed over the last decade, and they've seen that Russia promises to do something and does it. I mean, one example would be the intervention of Russia in the Syrian civil war on behalf of President Assad, uh, which turned the tide in that conflict and really delivered victory for Assad. And the Gulf states might have disagreed with that, but they saw that there was certainly a commitment from Russia. You get what you see. And they would contrast that with an increasing frustration at the United States and other Western powers. They don't no longer see the US and Western powers as the great arbiter of regional relations. They see the rise of Russia and the rise of China. So, Simeon, could Gulf states weaken the effort to isolate Russia's economy? Well, on the economic side, this is where it's going to be interesting because the Gulf wants to become a big investor in Russia. One can see that presumably continuing. But as Russia becomes increasingly isolated through sanctions, uh, the relationships it has with the Gulf states, including in the UE, which is a big financial recycling zone for global cash flows, uh, it'll be interesting to see how and when, the, the, for example, the UE reacts to these sanctions and whether Russians and, for that matter, Ukrainians are going to continue to see uh, the UE, especially places like Dubai, as a place where they can move money and keep money safe. As the sanctions become clearer in the, how they're going to be implemented, certainly the United Arab Emirates will be coming under increasing scrutiny as to whether it is playing its part in enforcing those sanctions, given that it's given this tacit political backing to Russia through the crisis. Simeon Kerr is the FT's Gulf business correspondent. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. If you aren't a subscriber yet, you can read our key Ukraine coverage for free. We've taken down the paywall for some of our coverage. Just visit FT.com slash free to read. Again, that's FT.com slash free to read. We'll also have a link to that one in the show notes. This has been your daily FT news briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.